of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, and in this episode, I'll be looking at my, the third part of uh, Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. And um, this part basically deals with really entering the black belt. So, so if you remember back, the first part of the book is his memoirs of his youth as a steamboat or yes a, a riverboat steamboat pilot and then he comes back later uh, in the 1880s to take a trip and then he does kind of a travel log in the second part uh it's actually the second time two-thirds of the book is the travel log and through that he comments a lot on the changes happening in america and in the mississippi um since the civil war um and eventually this trip takes him into the black belt uh, of the Deep South and then to New Orleans and he spends a lot of the later part of the book in New Orleans and we'll get into a lot of that next time now um, so what to say um, first of all this section of the book is actually quite funny it's it's really quite good especially when he gets to New Orleans I think that part of the book really shines um, in a lot of ways but there's a there's a sense you get as you read this book and as you studied a little bit more of 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 Twain's kind of cynicism and sarcasm and, and sometimes bitterness about about American society at the time it, it really does become a lot of social commentary and criticism of the idea of progress right because I think um, you saw that a little bit of that in Tom Sawyer um, you know where like the adult characters are I have kind of are misguided in various ways. And you see that even more in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, in a sense, adulthood being a metaphor for post civil war America being, um, uh, and it's optimism and it's, uh, arrogance about what it is and what it's becoming, you know, um, that doesn't mean in youth it's America's youth was ideal. Right. But there's a pompacity about American progress at the time that, that Twain doesn't have much patience for. Um, and you see a lot of that here, I think. Um, this is also a lot of storytelling here. There's whole like like side stories he tells, even ones that aren't really related to the Mississippi at all. He just sort of says, oh, I heard this story. I want to tell this story. And if you really heard them, I don't know, probably, probably not in some of these cases. They might just be tall tales or exaggerated stories that he wants to incorporate into the into the narrative there's actually several short stories you can sort of extract from it and the first one we deal with um is well first a, a little bit about entering into the black belt so he's entering into a part of the world that's um a part of america that's maybe less changed in his view in the sense you know still on the surface a change like slavery's gone but it still very much looks like the cotton south in a lot of ways and he he talks about that a lot about the houses and the and uh, the southern culture and this obsession with uh like medieval romantic novels of the 19th century 
in, in their castles and their homes and how this is contrasted with the sharp poverty you see among African Americans um, still working in the, in, in the cotton fields as sharecroppers or whatever. But there's a change, of course, too, in that, uh, you know, black people can move around. They're not tied to one piece of land anymore, and they often do. Um, and the development of the cities in the Deep South are, it's different than what he talked about earlier in the book, where you saw a much more kind of progressive sort of civilization. And here, the progress is really presented as slower and a little more um, false, I suppose. A little, if, if it's there, it's a little cosmetic. There's kind of a deeper rot that he, he's describing here. Um, but uh, one of the fun stories he tells here is about the destruction of Napoleon, uh, which was a, it's a city in Mississippi. No, it's in Arkansas. Maybe on the Arkansas side, uh, I think. Um, but it was devastated in the Civil War, and then later on it was actually taken in by the river. And that's a, kind of a theme we get in this part, too, is the, the river as something that's changing. And it's, it's a force of nature that can destroy cities, destroy communities, and leave some parts behind. And, and that changingness of the, of the river is something he wrote a lot about when he was talking about his time as a, as a pilot because that's something they have to know. Like it's going up and it's down and it, and it moves and it migrates uh, east and west. And that can be devastating to, to some of these settlements. And anyways, the story has to deal with like finding some, some kind of treasure in, that was kind of buried in Napoleon and all, and all that. And that's a, that's a nice little, little story. And then it kind of leads him into a conversation about like, about how a big windfall, how winning lottery or something can, can change uh, people or not. And, and that's, I think, a kind of a metaphor for a lot of what he's talking about in like in the Gilded Age America, in that, you know, money is in fact like a curse to one's morality. It, it gets in the way of our morality, right? And, and I think, you know, the, Think back to the adventures of Tom Sawyer and the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The treasure, Injun Joe's treasure, is also a... Uh, it's there not really as a plot device. It doesn't really... None, none of the characters use it, really. It's just sort of in the backdrop, right, as the, the means of civilizing Huck. Um, and, of course, becomes... It's, it's what Pap's after when he kidnaps and basically kind of ends up treating Huck as a slave. He's after that, that windfall too. And it's not going to make him a moral, civilized, ethical person. In fact, it, it can make us quite worse. And he, he says so quite explicitly here. So he, he tells this story in the, in the midst of dialogue uh, of different of him with, with a couple of their people telling the story about finding this, this treasure. He says, what business has the shoemaker with $2,000? I should like to know. A man, perfect, perhaps perfectly contented now there in Manaheim, surrounded by his own class eating his bread with his appetite which a laborious industry alone can give enjoying his humble life honest upright pure in heart and blessed yes i say blessed blessed above all by the myriads that go in silk attire and walk in the empty artificial rounds of social folly but just you put that temptation before him just once just you lay 1500 hours before a man like that and say 1500 devils cried i 500 would rot his principles, paralyze his industry, drag him to the rum shops, thence to the gutter, thence to the almhouse, thence to... And, and so he's ba say, basically saying pretty explicitly, like, you know, it's not going to change. It's not going to make you a moral person. It's not going to uplift you. Just like the wealth of the nation is, is just covering up the, 
the the heart of America, which is kind of dirty, um, kind of kind of nasty. And and then all that is in the context of the river destroying a town, right? The power of the river to sweep over everything that's that's built by man. Nature gets its its due. And then this segues into a chapter called Refreshments in, in Ethics, which um, actually has a lot to say about um, the changes in the South after the American Civil War. Um, he starts by going back over the changing river islands, you know, and, and kind of how the river is creating new islands or moving them or, or changing um, the land around it. But then he gets into like the planter class that still exists in the South and talks about their debts, their um, the, the mediocre profits from cotton, um, you know, and some of the changes in the industry of cotton production. But he gets also into the relationship with with black people and the the debts of planters and former slaves are both equally indebted, both kind of trapped into this this uh, cotton economy, which is kind of stagnant. And that's contrasted with the changing river. Um, and then when they, they travel past Vicksburg, and this allows him to meditate on, on Vicksburg during the war, after the war, and how it's changed. And, and then this becomes kind of another theme he explores for a while in this part of the book, which is the, the I guess, I don't know if it's almost like the lost cause kind of philosophy in a way, but he, he emphasizes the role of the government and the federal government even in, in kind of constructing a narrative of the Civil War. And he's quite sarcastic about it. You know, the, he talks about the national government making war monuments at, at Vicksburg um, and and kind of making it from a a symbol of Confederate resistance and, and a central victory in this this war against the planter class, to just a just kind of a a, a city of to be memorialized in a way. I don't know. It's kind of subtle, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, I think there's something to that. Um, and you know, both Vicksburg and Napoleon are presented after the war as being products of, of change. One a ch kind of a change in interpretation and perspective and and I, I guess and its place in the nation has changed in a way. Napoleon is just, it's just sort of eradicated. It becomes a ghost town. Um, and before he moves on from Vicksburg, he goes back to this theme of, of how we actually measure measure progress, which I, which I think in many ways is, is where the theme of the the book kind of turns in the, in, the, in the second half. He writes, Apparently, nearby all the river towns, big and little, have made up their minds that they must look mainly to railroads for wealth and upbuilding henceforth. They are acting upon this idea. The signs are that in the next 20 years will bring about some noteworthy changes in the valley in the direction of increased population and wealth and in the intellectual advancement and the liberalizing of opinion which go naturally with these. And yet, if one may judge by the past, the river towns will manage to find and use a chance here and there to cripple and retard this progress. They kept themselves back in the days of steamboating supremacy by a system of warfage dues so stupidly grafted as to prohibit what may be called small retail traffic and freights and passengers. Both were charged such heavy warfage that they could not afford to land for one or two passengers or a light load of freight. Instead, they encouraged the bringing of trade to their doors. The towns diligently and effectively discouraged it. 
end quote. So he, he's saying railroad's not going to change the fundamental nature of what these towns are, which is, you know, they're all trying to get their piece of it and take advantage of other towns. They really can't see themselves as part of a, of a broader project. Um, and then he tells another story. And this one is, uh, he tell he says, this is not about anything we're talking about. I just heard this story and I want to, sh want to share it with you. And I, I think he does this sometimes in his travel logs. He just uses it kind of as a, Sometimes I feel he's got like an extreme consciousness thing going on here. He goes to wild places, and that's one thing that's kind of fun about reading Mark Twain is you never quite know where you're, you're heading. But anyway, it's this story. He says he gets it from a professor, and again, I can't, I can't confirm it if it really happened or not. It's a, it's, a prof, it's a land surveyor turned professor, and then he tells a story. Basically, it's about gambling on a, on a ship going from Acapulco to San Francisco, so entirely different part of the, of the country. And uh, and basically, cheat, you know, people cheating to um, cheating at poker, and eventually getting like ten thousand dollars in the pool. And so again, we kind of have gold. We have sort of a treasure again, but it's presented in a very sarcastic, um, uh, cynical way um, that it's all game. Then. Then we get a little chapter called the end of the of the gold dust which is about the disaster of a of a of a ship called the gold dust being um destroyed injuring a bunch of people so um it's a steamboat yeah i think it's a steamboat but i guess once again we have a a kind of something called gold being being presented as it's just reality a dangerous deadly thing that is that's just destroyed at the river the boilers um, blew up destroying the ship so there's a there's a falsehood about gold um here and about wealth so now we're we're getting quite on our way to to new orleans and uh, mark twain devotes a few chapters to the architecture and the setting of of the deep south and he starts with the house and he starts with this interesting question like to many people a steamboat would be a beautiful house um, but to maybe people who live in mansions they might criticize it as not but then he, he he does very detailed comparisons of the furniture and the trappings and the accoutrements of of a, a, a southern aristocratic house um great palaces right and then he contrasts that with the same accoutrements and, and furniture of the steamboats and he basically comes away that there's not much difference between them they're both um they're both palaces of a sort to the common person and the differences between them are not are not going to be great to the, the majority and to kind of fine-tune and, and make a distinction between those two is an exercise in and again kind of elitist um pompous arrogance uh then he has a chapter on manufacturing where he um just talks about the development of, of small industrial towns here and there, mostly yarn mills and, and, and um, textile mills. If you study the labor history of this house, you know, that was like, um, you know, that required unskilled labor. It could be, they could be built with relatively little capital. So was, they were, and it was close to the cotton. So there was a lot of development of the, of that industry. Um, and then he kind of ventures this into a, a, a conversation he overheard dealing with uh 
margarine. Um, that's that's a, another example of just how his mind just takes him to different places, and he makes these contrasts, which I kind of appreciate because I I do that myself sometimes, and, and makes sometimes uh, connection leaps that other people don't follow, and it, it's fun to see other people do that as, as well. Um, but it's kind of all connected to like. European olive oil versus Americans. Cottonseed olive oil, which was being developed. So American, America's developing its own industrial olive oil as an as a import substitution for European olive oil, but it's, it's based on what else but cottonseeds, right? And he mentioned before how the Southerners were finding more and more what uses for cotton from the stems to the, to the seeds and things like that. And that, that was becoming a big industry too. So the development of, of industry even here is somewhat being um, uh, exposed in the same way as the, as the rest of the book. I mean, as the other topics he explores in this book. Um, now, continuing the, the, the journey down into the Deep South, he has a chapter called Castles and Culture. And here he really has a lot of fun attacking the sham castles that have been built. And he says this is all basically a southern fad for feudalism and aristocracy. And th this goes back to the antebellum period in the, in the Deep South. Maybe not so much in Missouri. I don't think it was a big thing there. But in the Deep South, in Mississippi, there was this fascination with Sir Walter Scott and the novels, these kind of this romantic, you know, gothic revival kind of, uh, what is it? we call it the gothic revival, but kind of a revival in medieval romantic liter literature in this kind of mediocre author, Sir Walter Scott, but he was super popular in the South and it fed into the, the ideology of the white South and the planter class who, who saw themselves as aristocrats. And, and that's how they entered the war. That's, um, that was a part of the, the ethos that brought the South into the war was this idea of chivalry and, and, and their honor and all this other nonsense. And it was it was coming from literature, right? It was coming from a, a fascination with with this medieval um, these medieval romances, which themselves are not accurate depictions of of that time. They're just uh, um, it's just fantasy essentially. But it really got into the hearts of these southern elite, and it got got so bad that they started building these sham castles. Um, and it's just whitewashing the realities of the South. I think that's what uh, Mark Twain is, is, is trying to say about uh, these castles and cultures. He puts them together. Um, he, he even uses the word whitewash sometimes. He says, uh, all this procession paints the attractive picture in the same way. The descriptions of 50 years ago do, do not need to have a word change in order to exactly describe the same region as it appears today, except as to the trigness of the houses. The whitewash is gone from the Negro cabins now and many, possibly most of the big mansions. Ones so shining white have worn out their paint and have decayed, neglected look. It is the blight of the war. 21 years ago, everything was trim and trig and bright along the coast, just as it had been in 1827 as described by those tourists. Unfortunate tourists. People humbugged them with stupid and silly lies, then laughed at them for believing and printing the same. End quote. So all of this brings us then into uh, into the New Orleans stuff, which is really some really fun stuff here. Um, so as we've seen a sort of a pattern by this point, he starts by talking about the progress of the city 
And in a chapter called The Metropolis of the Stout, he, he kind of rolls that out. Um, you know, but one of the new buildings is just a new cotton exchange. So even though there's progress and new buildings, it's the the reality. It's just it's, a, it's, a, it's a, in its own way, just another whitewashing of of the reality, um, which is still just a, an exploitative uh, cotton economy built on the, the use of southern poor labor, black and white. But um, so. Then he gets on his another side um, about death. And this is one of the funniest parts of the whole book, I have to say. Because, um, of course, in New Orleans, they bury people above ground because they're so close to the sea level and you can't really dig the holes, right? I guess they don't have basements either, obviously. But, you know, so they don't bury bodies underground. They put them in those mausoleums or so above ground. Um, and there's some really hilarious stuff here about about the dead. And he even goes, goes on a, a little... Uh, bit about how if you were to bury burying people causes like the release of this noxious gas that makes people sick and this leads him to talk about saint anne and, and i just got to read it because it's so funny the chapter is called hygiene and sentiment so the hygiene of how the dead are treated and the um contrast with the the sentiments one has about about the dead and the respect people have for the dead obviously mark twain doesn't have that much respect for the dead he's always making fun of dead or dying people or whatever or death often becomes a source of humor in his writings um, but here's what he writes first i will gradually drop this subject of graveyards he doesn't for a while for a few chapters but he says i have been trying all i could to get down to the sentimental part of it but i can't accomplish it i think there's no generally sentimental part to it it's all grotesque ghastly horrible graveyards may have been justifiable in the bygone aids when nobody knew that for every dead person put in the ground to glut the earth and the plant roots and the air with the diseased germs five or fifty or maybe a hundred per persons must die before their proper time so he's saying here the whatever is released by the dead bodies buried is going to make other people sick and, and kill them um and so this leads him into this thing about about saint anne which he's thinking about there's like relics to saint anne up in canada i i'll, I'll believe that i guess i um i think it's kind of funny um of course there were all these relics in medieval europe uh in an early modern europe and then i suppose some of them ended up in america and why not a bunch of bones of saint anne um but here's what he writes um so it's 1900 years ago right and they're curing the sick by the dozen. So St. Saint, Saint Anne is doing good in her death by curing the sick. So he says, okay, let's, let's take that for granted. He writes, but it is merest matter of course that these same relics within a generation after St. Anne's death and burial made several thousand people sick. Therefore, these miracle performances are simply comp compensation, nothing more. St. Anne is somewhat slow, slow pay for a saint, it is true, but better a debt paid after 1900 years and outlawed by the statute of limitations did not pay at all. And most of the knights of the halo do not pay at all. Where you find one that pays, like St. Anne, you find 150 that take the benefit of the statute. statute. And none of them pay any more than a principle of what is owed. They pay none of that interest, either simple or compound. A saint can never quite return the principle, however, for its dead body kills people, whereas his relics heal only. They never restore the dead to life. That part of the account is always left unsettled. I don't think there's much to this of, of cemeteries being full of this toxic gas, but 
Um, he's certainly having fun with this idea. Um, and then he gets to a chapter on the art of inhumation, which is about the development of involving and how this sort of just becomes another business. Uh, death becomes sort of commercialized here. And he has a, a lot of fun talking about that. And he, he has some dialogues with people who are in the business of embalming and, and the high costs involved in doing that and in, in doing that embalming. Um, should I stop here? Um, there's more than 100 pages left in the book, but a lot of it's appendices, appendixes, which are just newspaper articles that support different stories he told. So actually, there's there's only 100 pages left. So I am going to... Um, to cover my final thoughts about life on the Mississippi in the next episode and just let you know I had a lot of fun with this section. Um, I, I think thematically it's fairly consistent even though the, sto the story rants a lot and goes on a lot of side quests here and there. The heart of the story is the hypocrisy of American progress and I think that's a, a theme he of course hits on a lot in his works. And it's uh, done really, really well in this part of the story, I think. As he gets into the Deep South, it allows him to reflect on these a little bit more. In some ways, this is almost like three books. It's like you got the pilot memoirs. You have the, the, some commentary on like the changing of America, um, which he's reflecting on as he's going to the, to the Mississippi as a traveler. And then you have the realization as he gets into the Deep South that this is all just cosmetic um, and that, that they, they come together, I suppose, but, but they do kind of tell slightly different stories throughout. So anyways, uh, a good book. Uh, uh, still, I don't know if it's great, but it's still pretty, pretty fun. Um, and yeah, that's going to be it for now. So let me know what you think about any of this. Um, I'll be back in the next episode with my thoughts on the, on the, 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 the rest of Life on the Mississippi, and I'll, I'll give my overall kind of interpretation of, of this, this book. Um, anyway, so that's it. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. But she just walked up the bluff She raised a few eyebrows And then she went on down the road Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge